0: We're so thankful for everything that you've already done in the service. We thank you Jesus, for Lord for your word. God we thank you Jesus, that we can sing your praises here this morning. God with freedom, from our ability, from our choice here today, Jesus, we choose to praise you. We ask right now that you would speak to each and every heart in this place. let your will be done in our lives in Jesus name. Amen. Amen, you may be seated. We want to welcome all of our guests with us here this morning. Thank you so much for being with us as well. Welcome to Mission Point. Hey Amen. We are so glad to have you with us. Hey Amen. I'm going to just speak for a few moments here this morning. I will make mention, though, that the clock at the back has um, it, it detonated itself. It's just not working anymore. And my watch isn't working either, so... Your guess is as good as mine. I'm going to just preach until we're done. (laughs) No, I do have the time before me, so I am aware. Amen. And uh, just going to speak for a few moments here this morning on this topic, the way God sees it. The way God sees it. In Judges chapter 13, we come to one of the most interesting stories in the Bible, maybe the most well-known story of the Bible, the story of Samson. When I say Samson, what do you think of? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Long hair, strength, Delilah, Ooh, la, la. <laughs> Yeah, nearly everyone, when they think of Samson, have a picture in their mind of someone, someone like uh, maybe The Rock, but with hair. <laughs> but before we get into anything about Samson's life, I, I want to just push back on this a little bit. If you know anything about the details of the story, you know that Delilah, underneath the pressure from the Philistines, the enemies of the Israelites, was obsessed, literally obsessed, with learning the secret of Samson's great strength. So just think about it. If he already looked like a big, tough guy with long hair, it wouldn't be a secret about where his strength came from. It's true. When this guy killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, we think, well, yeah, he's... Arnold Schwarzenegger, or that striking Robertson fellow, of course. But in all reality, if it was a mystery where Samson got his strength, then we're going to realize that it had nothing to do with him, if it was such a secret. Where does his strength come from? And that's the whole point of the book of Judges, that the deliverance is never about the human deliverer. It wasn't about Ehud. It wasn't about Jael and her tent peg. It wasn't about Gideon with his 300 trumpet players. It's always only about God working through flawed people for divine purposes. And let me tell you, church, he is still doing it today. He's still using flawed people for his divine purposes. I, I would not be up here if that was not the case. Samson's story comes toward the end Uh, of the book of Judges. In fact, he's the last judge specifically talked about. And we get a lot more detail, a lot more material on him than we do the other judges, and I'm thankful for that, three whole chapters worth. We really get an understanding of the highlights of his life. God is going to give us the picture of how he saves his people. By this point in Judges, we've seen the basic cycle play out at least six times. They follow after God god's people follow after him their heart is drawn away to worship other gods god punishes them by allowing the enemy to enslave them they suffer and repent and cry out to god lord save us and then god raises up a judge to save them and they go along okay for a while until they forget what they've learned and the cycle starts over wash rinse repeat wash rinse repeat It just keeps on going over and over and so this is the last trip that we have in the book of judges around the hamster wheel at first we hoped they would just snap out of this this sinful cycle but now we've seen this again and again and again and we're ready to throw up our hands in despair and give up on israel when suddenly the narrative structure of judges changes and we get this really in-depth amazing story loaded with symbolism for us today here we go judges chapter 13 verse 1 it says and the people of israel did evil in the sight of the lord and the lord delivered them into the hand of the philistines for 40 years 40 in the bible it it referred to a number of judgment 40 40 was used to that extent It, it was as if that was the number of judgment and this is the ultimate judgment on sin the Philistines, they were bad people. Philistines were actually very sophisticated. Their weaponry, architecture, culture were far beyond any other civilization at their time. They were the first ones to work with iron and make iron weapons. They were the first ones to employ battle formations in war. They were unspeakably cruel. I'll spare you the details on what they would typically do to their victims, just because you guys are going to have lunch afterwards. By this point, we've already seen this phrase, did evil in the sight of the Lord or in the eyes of the Lord. Six times in Judges, we've already seen that. Did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Take notice of that. It's important. As we go through the rest of Judges, I want you to pay attention to how often something is said about eyes or sight. When Samson sees a beautiful Philistine girl, he tells his dad, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. How many of you dads have had your son come to you and say, get her for me? That would not work in today's society, I can tell you that. It says it again in chapter 14, verse 7, that she was right in Samson's eyes. Then when the Philistines do capture Samson, what do they do? They gouge out his eyes. I know, gruesome. When Samson prays to God to be, uh, prays to God to be, with him one last time, that God's strength will return to him one last time. It isn't so that God will be glorified, Samson prays to God that he will give him strength one more time so that he can be avenged for his eyes. And after Samson's death, you get the statement that really sums up all of Judges, Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what's the point of this? Well, again, the book of Judges in general and the story of Samson in particular is intended to answer a fundamental question for our lives and for our culture. And the question is this, who gets to define sin? Who defines what's right and wrong? You know, that was essentially the first temptation that Satan gave to humanity. Way back in the Garden of Eden, Satan slithered up to Eve and said, you know why God doesn't want you to eat from that tree, right? It's because that tree is the knowledge of good and evil. And look at the language that Satan uses in this context. After seeing all this about eyes in Samson's story, this will blow your mind. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, what's so bad about the difference, knowing the difference between good and evil? Wouldn't that help God out if we could figure that out for ourselves? But the problem wasn't that they knew the difference between good and evil, it's that they started believing that they could decide for themselves what was good and what was evil. You will be like God and decide what is good and what is evil that's been humanity's great downfall ever since samson wasn't the first one to have problems with his sight we get in trouble when we start making decisions about what's right and wrong without checking it against god's absolute standard verifying it in his presence and by his word case in point adam and eve they get it wrong right out of the gate their eyes are open and they're like oh no we're naked let's hide When their eyes are open, their immediate reaction is that they need to hide themselves from God. They disobey God and they know it. We always get it wrong when we try to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. We see the exact same thing in Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we see a continuation of this in verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Let me make some crucial observations about our salvation from these verses. First, notice what's missing between verse 1 and verse 2. There was no cry of repentance from the people. If these people are going to be saved, it's not because, going to be because God waits on them to seek Him. He must seek them. And second, this is the first time a judge is promised before birth. You see, with every other judge, God raised up someone who was already alive and said, I'm going to use that person. It's as if God is saying to them that the person He's going to use to save them this time the one they need is not someone from among them that he will just make stronger. He's going to have to start from scratch. And thirdly, this promise is given to a barren woman. He could have chosen anyone. Barrenness in those days was the ultimate devastation of a woman. The society was agrarian, which meant that the more sons you had, the more workers you had for the firm, and thus the more income you could generate for your family. I come from big families on both sides of my family, the Greenslades. My mom's side, she had, she had uh, nine brothers and sisters. My other side, they had 14 in all. And they knew what it was like to work the farm, hold them at a school to work the farm. They needed them. For the nation itself, its economic and military health was completely dependent on many children being born. And so the women who had lots of babies, they were like heroes, praised. But women who couldn't bear children were seen as useless. Terrible outlook, I know. And she's not just seen as useless, she's also anonymous. We are never told her name. We know the dad's name, Manoah. But Samson's mother is only referred to as the woman. I believe the author is intentionally painting her as obscure. And verse 4 gives us a hint that she may not have been especially, an especially religious woman either. The Bible tells us, the angel tells her, she must not eat anything unclean. If she was a devout Jew, an observant Jew, that would have gone without saying. Here's a lesson about salvation. It is so important. We talked about who gets to define sin. The answer, God. But who gets to deliver from sin? Thankfully, the answer is also God. God brings his salvation to a people who are not crying out a repentance. He does it in a new way. Not through our talents or gifts or righteousness to distinguish them for others. And a people with no hope and no prospects in themselves. He makes strong those he saves. He makes righteous those he chooses. Which means that no matter who you are, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in life, what mistakes you have made or what weakness you may feel, there is hope. For each and every one of us. God is the only one that can take barrenness and use it for the purpose of bringing deliverance. God is the only one who can take hopelessness and use it for the purpose of bringing hope. And This is the most amazing truth. God loves you. God loves us. Before we ever knew him and loved him for ourselves and chose that, he loves us. He waits in the doorstep of our heart until we get our perspective right and open the door to Him. He's already chosen us, but He's waiting on us to choose Him. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 7 to 8, The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers... Look at this. He chose the Israelites because he loved them and made an oath to redeem them. The pattern through which he chooses his people is never based on any qualifications that we can throw in our face and say, look, Lord, look at everything I've done. Now am I worthy enough to be chosen? We get the job before we even apply. Then the Lord waits for us to apply ourselves. Judges chapter, four, uh, Judges chapter 13, verse 4, Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, he shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Let's just talk about the Nazarite vow for a little bit. There were three parts to it. Number one, you couldn't cut any of your hair during the vow. Your hair had to be remained uncut. Number two, you couldn't drink anything from the vine, alcoholic or otherwise. So in that day, pretty much all you're left with is milk or water. They didn't have bubbly. And thirdly, you couldn't touch any dead bodies of any kind. Usually people would only commit to it for a short period of time when they were really asking, really seeking God about something, but... Samson is different. He's, he's asked to do this for his life. But he eventually trashes every one of these vows. Why? Because he's human. Notice the second part of verse 5. And he shall begin. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Begin. That's a weird word. Who will finish it? Samson is the last judge of Israel. He's the last one. So why would they use the word begin in this sentence? After he dies, Israel is still in pretty bad shape. And so you're asking, who's going to complete this work of salvation? And if you're asking that, then congratulations, you're reading the Bible the right way. This story won't be completed until the New Testament. And so in the next few verses, the woman tells her husband, her husband is skeptical and prays that God will send the angel back so that he can hear it for himself. I know, typical husband move. I I don't believe you. I need to hear it for myself. So God does. Grants him this. The angel appears to the woman. I really want her to have a name, so I'm going to call her Woman (laughs) Noah. She gets... As she goes and she gets her husband, Manoah, and check out what he does. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was an angel of the Lord. In this context right here, we get the answer to our third question. What do we contribute to the deliverance? Manoah wants to do something for the angel. He says, let me prepare a goat for you. And that sounds good and nice and hospitable, right? But understand that in ancient Near East, showing hospitality to a stranger obligated them to you. They would be considered in your debt So this might have been a power play on the part of Manoah, I don't know. But how often do we do that with God? I have given a lot of myself to you, Lord. You owe me. When Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, ran for president for a few minutes in 2019, he was asked by a reporter about his religious views, and here's what he said. This is his exact words. I am telling you, if there is a God... When I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. His exact words. I'm sure God is saying, oh, wow, come on in. (laughs) But Bloomberg was simply doing what Manoah did and what millions and millions of religious people have tried to do in between, negotiate with God. But God won't have it. And Bloomberg, he was right about one thing. It's not even close. Manoah tries what appears to be another power play. Look at verse 17. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? In many pagan cultures, it was thought that if you knew the name of a god, it gave you power with that god. We saw something similar in Genesis when Jacob wrestles the angel and asks the angel his name. And people still do this. They believe we have eternal security because we repeated a prayer or because we believe in Jesus. But be careful. The Bible tells us in the book of James, it reminds us that the demons believe in Jesus too. Here's the truth. God won't be bought off because we do a good deed. And he doesn't save us because we repeat some words like a magic spell and it's just going to happen. Our illustration for saving faith doesn't come from Manoah, but it, it comes from his wife, Womanoah. All the women in the room say, well, i seen that coming. In verse 19, it says, So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And when the the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And Manoah and his wife fell with their faces on the ground. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, we would not have, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or show us all these things or now announce to us such things as these. Now even though this woman is anonymous and barren and maybe not very religious, she responds in a way that puts her among the greatest women of faith in the Bible. She simply says, snap out of it, Manny. If God wanted to kill us, He wouldn't have given us a promise. If God wanted us dead, He would not have given us the promise. And so she brings common sense in the equation. Her eyes are fixed on the promise. That was better than Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who laughed when God told them that she would bear a son. She laughed. Her response is better than Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, the priest who doubted the angel when he told her that she'd have a baby in her old age. There's only one or maybe two other scenarios that we can go to in the Word of God of somebody who responded with that same kind of faith. One of them was Mary. When she heard about the impossible birth, she said, be it unto me according to your word. I'll believe what you promised and do all that you have said. There was only one response that pleases God. I believe, Lord, what you have promised and I'll do whatever you say. In this statement, she is claiming the Lord has a plan for us. That's all he's looking for, for us to believe him at his word. I don't understand what you're doing in my life, Lord, but I'll say yes to your will and to your way. Help me to see things the way that you see them, Lord. The difference between Manoah and his wife is the difference between religion and faith. Religion is built on negotiation. I'll give you this in exchange for this. I'll give you my worship in exchange for your blessings. But Jesus doesn't negotiate. He owns it all, including us. And you can only be one of two postures with Him, faith and surrender or rebellion. The great Christian thinker C.S. Lewis, he put it this way, we are not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. We are rebels who must lay down our arms. Jesus doesn't come into our lives to help us live our best lives now. He comes to take over. We don't have anything to negotiate with anyway. We are like Manoah's wife. We are barren. We're unrighteous. But she demonstrates a trust in God and an absolute surrender to his plan. And that's what God is looking for from us. It's not about the way that we see things. Because our perspective can be deceptive. Our emotions will trick us into thinking that we are always right. Never wrong. Look at the life of Samson. Samson began to save the people of God. But I'm so thankful that the Lord finished the work. It's all about the way that God sees it. He has created and established the heavens and the earth, formed galaxies upon galaxies down to microscopic matter. He formed humanity knowing full well we would need rescuing. And so he made a plan all for the intent of working out his salvation for us. And The question for us today is this. Are we ready to admit that we haven't always done what was right? We at times have done what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. We have lived by what is right in our own eyes. Our deliverance comes only by following God's plan. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it tells us that salvation is found in no other name. Only by the name of Jesus are we saved. You can look if you want to, but you will find that He alone is the Savior. We can't bribe God and put Him into our debt. We can't control the Lord and put Him into our power. We can't negotiate with Him and work out more favorable terms of surrender. We can only offer God our absolute surrender. We have problems with our vision at times. We don't always see right. Sin binds you and then it blinds you. And if we read the rest of the story of Samson this morning, we would see that unfold in his story. Binds you and then blinds you. God knew we wouldn't always see eye to eye. But because of the Lord's favor, because of his mercy and grace, we have received everything. And so we live with the conviction that we have been rescued, but we are not entitled. The way God sees it, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And because we are flawed, imperfect people, we would get ourselves into trouble. We think we know everything at times, but we don't. We think we can do it all on our own, but we can't. We think we don't have a seeing problem with the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view the world, the way that we view others. But we do. And the prescription needed to correct the problem with our sight is to get insight from the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and to the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. That's what the Word of God does. And that's why so many people shy away from it when they feel like maybe they're not on the right track. Because they don't want that two-edged sword to come down on their life and begin dividing things from what's right and what's wrong from our thoughts and the intents of our heart to his will. If I could have the music come back at this time, I told you I wouldn't be long. I'm going to wrap this all up with a pretty bow and put it underneath the Christmas tree. (sighs) By the way, how many people have actually already started putting up their Christmas decorations? I was just discussing this with the people. Oh, my goodness, that's way fewer than what I thought it was going to be. I was telling them out back, there's really only three people in the world. There's people that put it up immediately as soon as Remembrance Day is done, 11-12. Everything's being hauled out and put up. There's people that wait until Christmas Day to put up everything. And then there's other people who just leave it up all year round. <laughs> We're gonna celebrate Christmas the whole year through. When I was, uh, when I was in elementary school, I went into the classroom one morning and I sat down in my usual spot and I looked up at the board as the teacher was teaching, instructing the class. And as I looked out, up at the words, everything was distorted and blurry. I went up and I told the teacher what was going on and she offered to move me at the front of the class and I was fine. And then she said, Well, I, I think you should just get checked out by the school nurse. I'm gonna send you down to her. So she sent me down the hallway and I walked down to where she was and she sat me into a chair in front of this chart. And if you've ever been to the eye doctors, you'll know there's this chart that the words at the top, they're they're to build your confidence. You look at those and you say, Oh yeah, I can read that no problem. Like, yeah, that's a T. It's an H. Get this like this is easy and the further you go the more your confidence is taking a hit and so it was with me that day as I got looking on uh, you know a few lines down I, I couldn't read anymore I it was just all blurry I couldn't see anything and she turned to me and she said you you need corrective lenses your sight has deteriorated to the point that you need assistance from corrective lenses I think you'll really benefit from them. And I remember going to the eye doctor for the first time, and they put you they put you in that machine where you put your chin under. And they say, just look into it. And you're looking into it. And you, I don't see anything. And all of a sudden, yet yeah, you have an eyeball. I know because you could feel that. And They put you into the chair and hook you up to all of these different lenses. Does this look better? Does this look better? And then you start just guessing because at times you just don't know. You're like, yeah, sure. Actually, they both look the same. I don't know. (laughs) You tell me. You're the eye doctor. What do you think I need? I'm here because I need help from you. And... What I found out from all of that is that the corrective lenses really did fix my sight. If we could all stand. The only thing that will give us 2020 vision today in this world, in our lives is the Word of God. It, it is the thing that discerns and decides for us what is right and what is wrong in our life, even when we get ourselves off track. You may have come into this place today thinking everything was absolutely fine and lately, but lately you've noticed that your eyes have lost focus on the promise. The Bible tells us that His Word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It lights up the way that we go. We can't afford to shut off that light. Sometimes we shy away from God and His Word because we'd rather not know. We don't want to know what's in front of us. We don't want to know what God is going to highlight in our path. We'd rather be left in the dark. The truth of where we are spiritually is is better left unknown. And so we just don't dig in like we should. We don't pray like we should. We don't connect with God like we did. That's not the way that God wants it. That's not the way that God sees it. Isaiah prophesied that Christ would come to a people that he would speak to, but they would not hear. Show them things, but they would not see. But there would come a generation. There would come a people who would see and who would be open to hear God's words. Luke chapter 10 verse 23 and 24 Jesus turns to his disciples and tells them privately blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things that you see and have not seen them and to hear The things that you hear but have not heard them. We stand in a precarious place here this morning on the threshold of hearing the promises of God and holding them dear to our hearts, but it's within our ball court. It's within our sight to see. King David wrote in Psalm 123, verse 1, he wrote, Unto you I lift up my eyes. O you who dwell in the heavens, behold as the eyes of servants look up to the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until He has mercy on us. And so here this morning, I'm going to invite all of us to come as we open up this altar and begin to sing praises to the Lord that He would help us this morning that if we ever have, or if we presently are, into a place that we don't quite see as clearly as we used to see and maybe our sight for God for us for the world for others it's mixed up it's blurry it's distorted that he would apply the corrective lenses of the word give us his insight so that we can see the way that God sees